Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31 with Pastor John King. Well, good morning, everybody. Today we're going to finish uh, chapter 4 of Galatians 21 through 31. Uh, and then we're going to have a couple week break from Galatians. Uh, we're going to have a few guest speakers that you know very well. They're not just guests, they're part of our family. Uh, as Margaret and I head out for a little vacation, but we will be back. We're not leaving the church. just want you to know ahead of time. Okay. But uh, so this will be, uh, again, chapter four of Galatians. We're in 21 through 31. You know, last week, uh, Paul gave him a reminder. You know, he's starting to soften his tone towards his congregation that he loves, these churches. And he gives him a reminder of how it was when he was with them. You know, the difference, kind of the good old days, how they were. And, uh, you know, he was just really opening up to him. And he was very humble in his appeal, but he was also, of course, very truthful to remind them, we know that ministry is messy. And, and he paid him a very good compliment because when he first came to Galatia, he was very sick. He was a mess. He was a hot mess, as he would say. Did I, was I allowed to say that from the Pope? Anyway, uh, he was a mess and he needed lots of physical uh, attention. He needed lots of medical care. And they took care of him. They didn't scorn him. And so he reminds them of that. But he also wanted to warn them that, look, these people that are presently in Galatia that are trying to steal you away to a false doctrine, you know, they're just, they, have a, they have a desire for you, but they're not leading to anything good. They're, you know, they'll use you to get their way, but they will move on. And we know that that's a problem. And so he gives them a direct warning. And at the end of it all, he's kind of scratching his head. He's still very perplexed. And you remember from verse 20, he says, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone. He said, for I have my doubts about you. So here we have, we start out in verse 21. Now, in order for Paul to make his point about what he said there in verse 20, about how perplexing their behavior is, Paul's going to take them back to a Bible study. And the only Bible that they had, the only scriptures they would have had then were the Old Testament. And he's going to contrast two aspects of all human ancestry. Now we know that you know, we're all born in sin because of Adam, because of original sin. But since the, problem, excuse me, since the promise to Abraham has come to be, and of course Jesus coming and doing the work he did, all human ancestry now has... Uh, a a spiritual, spiritual heritage, if you will. All human, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you have a spiritual heritage. And spiritually speaking, we're either children of the promise through Abraham and Sarah or children according to the flesh. And what's worse, reminded, we were reminded Jesus told us, in fact, we're you know, sons of the devil if we're apart from Christ. And so... He's going to analyze the situation. He's going to provide the Galatians with help in understanding what their identity in Christ is. Because we can get that all wrapped around the axle. And the way that they were getting their identity in Christ wrapped around the axle was this return to legalism. This return to bondage under the law. He says, you're no longer slaves born into spiritual bondage, but we and you and I are, no, are now living as children of the promise. And so we need to be reminded who we are in him. Amen? You know, it's a matter of, of free will, if, if you will, because you can trust in your own efforts 
to attain and maintain a right relationship with God. You can place your trust in that and it puts you under bondage. Or you can simply trust in God's promise. Simply trust. So let's read the passage. It starts in verse 21. Paul continues his dialogue. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. And these things, or which things, are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Agar, and this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it also corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So he's connecting a lot of those things, and we're going to break that down a little bit later. But the Jerusalem from above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, and he's going to quote Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren, we heard this this morning, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And Paul's going to use that passage to explain something very interesting. Verse 28, now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of the promise. So now we're talking about a separate blessing, a different situation. But he who, ha who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Even so, it is now. Nevertheless, what does Scripture say? It's always good to ask that question. What does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, for your uh, supernatural ability to help us to understand your word. We're just going to stick with the plain meaning, but Lord, there's, a, there's, there's more for us as we study your word. There's more for us as it's, it penetrates our hearts and does a change, starts to change and transform us. Just being, having our, our spiritual eyes opened up and having the light of your word shine in our hearts and the spirit of the Lord comes among us, Lord, and washes us and cleanses us, Lord. It's just an amazing thing. We look forward to it. And here we are once again in that place. So, Lord, go before us. Teach us your word today. Speak to our hearts as only you can. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, we're going to start out. He's going to do a series of comparisons. A series of comparisons. First, he starts out with two sons. And this is a comparison of self-effort versus trusting God, really. In verses 21, he says, he starts out again, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Now, to be under something is to be subject to the power of any person or anything. And in this case, it was dead legalism and works righteousness. He says, you who desire. Now, Paul, we remember, he desired to be with them, but they had gotten really strange and really weird, and they kind of 
you know, were, were really, you know, kind of perplexing Paul. They desired now to be subject under the law. When he was with them and teaching and it was a healthy fellowship, they were under grace. And that's the way it should be. We should realize and recognize that you and I, as sinners, are under grace. We don't have the heavy weight of the law bearing down upon us. And we don't choose to come up under it. But with the false teachers, they were under the law. He says, do you not hear the law? What, he, what he's trying to say is, do you not comprehend what it is that you desire to be under? Do, do you not get the, you know, all that you're signing up for, in other words? Are you not aware of what the law says if you have an NIV? More of a plain reading there. Most of the Galatians were Gentiles, most of them, so they wouldn't have an, a real deep understanding of the law at all. They, were in, you know, coming, they came out of the culture. They came out of the pagan culture. Just like many of us, if you weren't raised in church or you didn't grow up to know the Lord, you didn't grow up in, in, under Bible teaching, you and I may have come out of the culture. And uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing. So they may not have understood the law. But he's, to them, he says, think about it this way. Verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, where is it written? Well, in this case, it's kind of unique. When Paul, you normally, normally when, a, when somebody says, for it is written, they go on ahead and actually quote directly from Scripture. But in this case, Paul, he's not going to quote directly from Scripture. He's, he's actually going to paraphrase. He's going he's to paraphrase, it is written to summarize what's contained in the Scriptures. So you see that being used here by Paul. Now, you might ask yourself, well, why is he bringing up Abraham again? Now, haven't we heard enough about Abraham? Um, you know, it's because those false teachers were coming into that church and they were teaching these converts, these Christians, that in order to be a true Christian, a male Gentile convert needed to make a physical connection to Father Abraham. And the only way for you to do that was for, through circumcision. Imagine a revival meeting. Imagine, you know, ministries that would go out and have these great revivals and people would come to Christ and, you know, have the big tent or whatever. And then they say, okay, all you guys over here, over there, you go over to that special tent because we got something else you needed to do to become a true Christian. It, it, you know, it doesn't, you're like, what are you talking about? Of course, that would never work. But that's the crazy audacity. That's sort of an example of what these false teachers were doing to that church trying to put them under the yoke of the law. So he says, For it is written, Abraham had two sons. The one, the first one, was born of a bondwoman, a maidservant, a young female slave, specifically the maidservant who would have charge of the door, if you will, in that, in that day and in that culture. And we see that in Genesis 16, verses 15 through 16. Uh, you could... I don't, do we have that slide? I don't know if we do. But anyway, Agar bore Abram a son, and Abram was named his son. But the thing to remember is Abram was 86 years old when this slave woman, Agar, gave birth to Ishmael. Or Ishmael. So here you have the one, the bond, born of a bondwoman through the, through the maidservant, Ishmael. And then you have the other by a free woman. Freeborn in the civil sense, one who is not a slave, and that is Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
And we see that in Genesis 21, 2, and 3. I'm not going to read all through that. And just a side note as we start talking about Abraham and his life and the, his, the, his marriages, after Sarah died, Abraham had many more sons. He married uh, Keturah, and you see in Genesis 25, 1 and 2, he took a wife again after Sarah died. Her name was Keturah, and she bore him uh, one, two, three, four, six names that I'm not going to read. Now, Paul begins to explain the differences between the circumstances that led to these two births, these two sons. One born of a bondwoman, one born free. Verse 23, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Referring, of course, to Ishmael. Now, how did Ishmael end up with this description you know, this kind of dis this describing his, his birth. How did he end up with that? Well, he was born after the order and the process of nature. He required no miracle or promise of God. He was born into slavery. Sla Hagar was a slave girl. And he was be born because of the fleshly impulses of Abraham. You know, he didn't push back at all on Sarah's insistence that Abraham lie with their slave, his, her slave girl to conceive a child. And so this was a work of the flesh. This wasn't a work of God. But remember, God had made a promise. And that we're going to see the lesson and how that applies to us. It says he was, he was of the bondwoman born according to the flesh. But then he, the other one, referring to Isaac, was born of the free woman, free, free woman through the promise. This was Abraham's second son. What did that entail? Well, he was born free because he was born from a free woman, and that's the culture of the day. Her name was Sarah. He was born by the promise of God alone. He was a miracle child. I mean, Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Now, that doesn't happen every day. That has to be a miracle. And he was also persecuted by Ishmael. So, we kind of need to understand a few things. One, according to Jewish law and custom, and even to this day, we're told, the status of the mother determines the status of her child. If you were born of a slave woman, you were a slave, and if you were born of a free woman, you were free. That's, that was the culture in the day. And remember, in that day, there were only two uh, people groups. Of, uh, social, there were two, only two social structures. Okay, you had the, the wealthy and the not. There was no such thing as a middle class. Those that were wealthy were in power, the religious leaders or the government, the Roman government, and those who served their life and spent their life in slavery. That was the reality of the day. But the point is this, and needs to be remembered, Ishmael, the child born by human ingenuity, energy, and effort, was born into slavery. But Isaac, who was the child promised by God, was born miraculously by the promise of God and by his love and power alone, all because he alone made that promise. Real quickly, it might be helpful for us because I, you know, Paul is obviously assuming that this Galatian church understands all of the Old Testament and understands the whole story of Abraham. So I'm going to briefly run through several scriptures. We won't be putting them up on the screen. And let's just take a high pass, if you will, about Abraham and go through Genesis real quick as a kind of a, an aside here. 
First of all, at the age of 75, God commanded Abram to relocate, and he gives him a promise. We saw that in Genesis 12, verses 1 and 2, if you're taking notes. It says, The Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So God, you know, at the age of 75, and if you look at, uh, you'll notice what we see and in the people that God uses, the men that he uses. And here in the case of, of uh, Abram and then later in the case of Moses, these were both men of character, men of character, and, and mainly Abram. Uh, you know, there's a lot of study. There's a, there's a famous uh, podcast that came out about a year ago. Uh, we live in our society. We know about the megachurch phenomena in our country, in North America, and in other parts of the world. And there's a, there's a podcast that was put out a year ago, and it's, I listened to some of it. And it, it really, it's kind of a dramatic pro podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill Church. Some of you might be familiar with Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And you had this pastor, Mark Driscoll, who basically started with a, you know, 25 people, and then it grew into a huge movement in a very short period of time. And they had well over 10,000 attendees in a city that was less than 2% churched. And then it had an almost instantaneous collapse. And so this, this podcast gives a lot of background detail. There's a lot of... Uh, um, interviews, uh, an interesting listen if you want to study the culture of church in America. But really what keeps coming back is this man, this pastor, Mark Driscoll, had a great amount of talent. He was very skilled. People wanted to hear what he had to say. But his character wasn't in line with his talent. And so, you know, his church blew up. And it was a very sad and tragic thing. Some people say, maybe that's not a good thing to put out there so everybody can see, but I think there's some lessons to be learned. And so when we see here, it reminds me, again, now that was a real rabbit trail, sorry. It reminds me again, though, how God came to Abraham at the age of 75. At the age of 75, he commanded him, and he said, you, gotta, you need to relocate. I want you to take all of your family, your wife, and then go to this place that I will show you. And he gave him a promise. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And that was true. That is true. That's the truth. We know it thousands of years later. Now the promise included children. But at the time, by the time, excuse me, by the time Abraham was 85 years old, so he did, he was obedient to God. He and Sarah had not been able to conceive a child. Several times Abraham sought and received God's reassurance that the promise still stood. And by the time you get to Genesis 16, you see that Sarah's faith now is really starting to falter. And so she suggests to Abraham, hey, maybe you know, we need to help God and you need to go lie with my maidservant so we can bear a child, so that I can then take him and raise a son. And we see that in Genesis 16, 1 through 4. And we're not going to read all of it, but Notice that Abraham heeded the voice of his wife. He didn't use wisdom. He didn't push back. He didn't remind his wife of the promise that God had given him. And so she conceived and gave birth to Ishmael. Now, 14 years later, Abraham is now 99 years old and Sarah's 90. And Abraham asks now to God, he approaches God and he says, 
God, you know, can we, can we make this covenant that you gave me, the promise, can we just kind of make it retroactive to Ishmael? Can we make it work through him? Because obviously, we're not having any children. <laughs> and Genesis 17. And God said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And that's when Abraham asked him, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, we could just, can't we just put Ishmael in place of this promise? And God said in Genesis 7, 19, no. No. He said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so what we learn through the, study, through the book of Genesis is that God does indeed keep his promises. And folks, we need, to, we need to latch on to that. You may be in a season of life where you've been waiting for a long, long time for something that you know the Lord has promised he wants to do in your life. You know, you, you may have just sought him in prayer and you're praying for that prodigal or whoever it is. But God hears your prayers. That's the promise we can all take to the bank. God hears your prayers. He may not speak to you as he spoke audibly to Abram, but he speaks in that still small voice in your heart. And you, see, you, can, you, know, you learn these lessons from these folks. God keeps his promises. And many of you have testimonies that speak to that. But we so easily forget. And so God keeps his promises and then Abraham's Ishmael's descendants through Ishmael. And the story continues on. It's kind of a sad story because God, uh, Sarah, you know, ends up saying, hey, you, you know, by the time Ishmael grows up, there's a, they have this, they have this um, um, a big feast when Isaac was weaned. You may be familiar with that, Genesis 21. And they had this big celebration that Abraham put together for his, the son of the promise. And here's, Agar and Ishmael, and Agar is mocking and making fun of this child. And Sarah, mom, you know, mama bear came out and she said to Abraham, you need to get that lady out of this life, out of our life. You need to take her and her son and get them out. And Abraham was heartbroken, but he did what God told him to do. And he, he, he released them and he sent them out. And they, you know, they became what now we would know as, the, you know, early in the early days, they'd be considered the Arabs. And there's a lot of, look, there's a lot of information I'm just highlighting, uh, we've got to be careful how we label people and people groups. But that's the story. And so what's the point now to Paul's ana analogy? He's, again, assuming that they understand most of what we just covered. And the point is this, that Agar and Ishmael, they represent those who reject God's promise and through human effort or the flesh now try to achieve what God gives freely through faith. So we can try to work our way or we can try to trust God in faith. And that's what he would have us to do. Now Sarah and Isaac represent the miracle based on a supernatural promise. Because her and Abraham were very old. There's no way they could have had children were it not for God. And so you have now two kinds of birth, if you will. You have the natural birth and the supernatural birth. And you say, well, how does this apply to me? I mean, I, I appreciate Pastor John, the little history lesson in the Old Testament, but how does that apply to me? 
Well, everything, it applies everything in the sense that, yes, we were all born naturally, but it took a supernatural rebirth to become a child of God. You had to be born again. Jesus said in John 3.3 3, to Nicodemus, he said, Nick at night, we remember him, right? He said uh, to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, Thinking about those two natural births, you know, now it starts to get a little bit closer to our understanding. Paul begins with two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and explains that they illustrate the two births. The physical birth that makes us sinners, because we're all born under Adam, and the spiritual birth that makes us children of God. In the next section, Paul is now going to do another contrast. He's going to talk about the two covenants. One covenant of bondage and the other covenant of freedom. He says in verse 24, after explaining the, the, the two children, the bondwoman and the, and the free, he said, which things are symbolic? Which things are symbolic? And then he says, for these are the two covenants. Now, symbolic. Uh, King James Version, you would say allegory. So Paul is now clearly identifying that he is using these actual biblical characters, they were real historical biblical characters and places to provide a kind of a truth picture for them. You know, he wants to give them a truth picture and to help with their understanding, but also to refute the false teachers because they use the same Bible to bring these people back into bondage. And Paul is using the Bible now to help these Galatians to understand. So Paul is, what is he doing? He's seeking common ground with his hearers by using a familiar device called an allegory. An allegory. John Calvin noted that Paul was being guided by the Holy Spirit on this. But Calvin also wisely cautioned us readers and teachers of scripture to be very careful not to try to use allegory to read into scripture. We want to bring truth out of scripture, but we don't want to read truth, our own truth, back into scripture. We don't want to look to spiritualize and try to find allegories in the Bible. That was a practice of the early church fathers, and it was a practice, it's been a practice of the Catholic church as well. And that gets you into trouble because what you do is you spiritualize everything and you confuse everybody. So we just want to, that's a little side note, we want to be careful about allegory. One of my favorite pastors, and some of you as well, is Alistair Begg. He would say, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And that's a good thing to remember when we start to read our scriptures. <coughs> but now we're going to talk about the two covenants and they're pictured here by Mount Sinai and Sarah, kind of together, and Mount Zion, excuse me, Mount Sinai and Agar, backwards, and Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and Sarah. What are we talking about? Well, he, he goes on, he says, the one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage, which is Agar. So now he's got to connect a bunch of dots because he said all this stuff and it makes it hard for us to, pre to preach this, I will tell you. But Mount Sinai is where God gave Moses his law, okay? But it also, we learned, and we've learned so far, that the law has a specific purpose, 
But if you try to use it to gain salvation and make yourself right with God, you know, it shows you your need for God. But if you try to make yourself right for God living under the law, it leads to bondage. The law was never intended to be part of the promise to bless the world through Abraham. It was a promise to Abraham. It was to the world, not just to Abraham, but to the world. So it gives birth to bondage, and then he connects it, which is Agar. She's the bondwoman. So she's illustrated as a type of the old covenant between God and man. Okay, verse 25, For this Agar is now Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and in bondage with her children. The earthly Jerusalem. Now, we, we've read, as we read through the Gospels, we've read many times, uh, Jesus' life in his ministry down in Judah, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, and right outside the city we know Jesus was crucified. It was the capital of Jewish religion, and he says, which now is, and still was in Paul's day, but it says, is in bondage with her children. You know, the city, even though they had the freedom to practice their religious activities, the Jews were still under bondage to the Romans. They allowed them to do certain things, as long as they gave tribute to Caesar. So they were stuck in bondage under this hyper-religiosity. Remember Jesus, what he would say. When, when Jesus looked at a religious person of the day, a Pharisee or a hypocrite who, wasn't, who was proud in their, in their religion, Matthew 23, 27 Jesus says this, this is our loving Lord Jesus, okay? The loving Lord Jesus. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. He had the harshest words for those Pharisees and those religious zealots who try to live under the law and try to make pretend that they were not hypocrites. They tried to make pretend that they did actually live under the law when we know that, that nobody could. So now Paul, having said that, and that, that little side of things, he's, now he's going to say in verse 26, he's going to compare the Jer Jerusalem which is above, the new Jerusalem, which is the mother of us all. You know, we say the mother of us all. You know, Sarah, if Abraham is your spiritual father through the promise, then Sarah is your spiritual mother. You go, I didn't think you could say something like that from the Bible. Well, that's what it says. She's the mother of us all. So we're not getting weird here. It's just the scripture. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to, you know, it's a thinking process, if you will. He says, but Jerusalem above is free. This is the other new covenant, which is symbolized here by Sarah based on God's promises. Revelation 3.12, Revelation 21.2 uh, you know, Revelation 3.12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. Uh, he would go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. And you see it referenced as well, the new Jerusalem. This is a perfect place because it's in heaven. There is no sin. This is a new Jerusalem. And so that promise leads to other promises. And that we will someday be in heaven with the Lord and the new Jerusalem will be a thing. In heaven, a real thing. And it says here, Jerusalem above is free. Why is it free? Because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross made this a free gift. We don't have to try and pay the price ourselves. And the mother of us all, he's, what he's doing here is 
you know, we're a family in God. We're children of God. And we're under a new covenant with, with Abraham and Sarah symbolizing spiritual parenthood. And then he goes and he quotes from Isaiah 54.1. And what he's doing here, he's quoting from this particular scripture as a way to strengthen his argument against the false teachers. And he's also want to show that the promise produced many more children of God than the Jewish religion. So when he says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. The desolate, uh, meaning they were deprived of friends, like a woman deserted by her husband, but God has not forgotten his people, the Jews, okay? But then he says here, um, those that are born of the promise, those who receive the promise, has many more children. So what's really happening, what he's saying here is, the church itself, the church of Jesus Christ, through the last 2,000 years, has so greatly outnumbered the Jewish religion by a wide margin. There's probably 2 billion professing Christians on earth right now. Uh, half, of with, half of which might be our Catholics, so you could do what you want with that. But keep in mind, there's a lot of false believers in the Protestant as well. So, Paul you know, uses that, that Isaiah passage to prove the point that legalism and Jewish Judaism and putting that yoke isn't going to work in the long run. And we know it to be true. The church is massive compared to the Judaic religion. And then he says it again. He keeps reiterating it. Now we, brethren, you know, he's with them. He's like, hey, if I was there, I'd tell you to your face. But he's with those people. He's saying to them, not to false teachers, we, the true believers, brothers in Christ, is, or as Isaac was, are children of the promise. So it doesn't make sense what you're trying to do here. Why you want to go back under the law makes no sense whatsoever. We are children of the promise. I'm going to speak for myself here. I just want to say, you know, Paul is going above and beyond to explain why the choices being made by the Galatians are bad choices. And someone might be tempted to say, okay, Pastor John, I get it. <laughs> Can we move on to some more exciting topics? How to have our best life now or something along those lines. How to improve our marriage, which is a good thing, and we will have our, Lord willing, have our marriage retreat again this year. How to fix my finances. How to fix my sin struggle. How to, how to solve my pornography problem. God forbid, but it could well be happening. But thanks, excuse me, perhaps you and I should be thankful for Paul's willingness to be used by the Holy Spirit and to recognize that our Christian faith is built on supernatural, solid foundation. You know, he's going to great lengths to prove through Scripture that what we have as children of the promise, our faith has a solid foundation. A solid foundation that indeed, you know, it sort of reaches into heaven and all of eternity. It's not just platitudes and good sounding things and slogans and counterfeit offers that the world has for us. 
So it's important for us to be rooted and grounded in the basics of our faith, basic understanding. Because when things go crazy in your life and it starts to disappear, you know, all these wonderful, neat ideas start to disappear, you're going to come right back to the foundation of your faith. You're going to say, no, Lord, you promise. You promised. And so we just, you know, sometimes people say, you know, oh, we're not going to teach through that. Listen, folks, we're going to go through the Bible here at this church. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to stay in his word. Amen? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Good reminder at this point. All scripture, no, 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 not, not all, maybe some of it. No, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our final section, the battle for truth. You know, the flesh versus the spirit. That's always happening. It's happening all the time. And now he's going to illustrate it to them. He says, but he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted he who was born according to the spirit. Even so it is now. Even so it is now. The battle between the flesh and the spirit. The battle between false belief. The battle between Satan, the enemy, and God's children. But he who was persecuted according, was born according to the flesh. He's referring back to Ishmael. And he's most likely referring to the incident we talked about earlier in Genesis 21 where Ishmael and uh, his mother were, not, not Ishmael maybe, but his mother was, Hagar was making fun of Isaac. And so he persecuted him. And he says, even so it is now. So this is where Paul's saying, look, during Paul's time and even now, religious legalism can't mix, it can't mix and coexist with spiritual freedom. You know, one's going to have to take over from the other. If legalism and bondage comes and tries to pervade itself, one or the other is going to take over. You know, today we have some amazing stuff going on, right? Just an interesting world we live in with all of our ability to communicate and all the opinions we have access to and the fact that the planet's, you know, 8 billion people and those that don't know God are worried that the planet's going to blow up and explode and it's going to, you know, end in so many years and we've got to do something about that and, you know, all the politics that are going on with that. And within that situation, within the church, you have this phenomenon known as progressive Christianity, which isn't really anything new. It's just people who decide that all of the Bible's not true. They want to pick and choose what's true. And it comes against traditional and orthodox Christianity. And they're at great odds over important things like, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture. You know, it, it, does Scripture actually have authority over my life? I may believe that God breathed it, but does it have authority over my life? And there are those in the church that are saying, you can't do that. You can't put that on people. The Bible is, you know, for old stuff. It's for, for an older time. We're modern now, postmodern. And then you also have legalists that would say, no, you can only use one certain type of Bible. You can only use the King James Bible. And if you're not teaching from the King James Bible, 
you're, you're, an, you're a you know, borderline heretic. You're, you're committing sin. So all this stuff is going on. And again, this, this religious legalism or this sort of you know, progressive Christianity or this intense uh, legalism, it still goes on today. So you have a rigid set of rules regarding music and clothing and which Bible you use. We don't, we don't have that here. I, I once heard Joe Foch, if you guys are familiar with Joe Foch, he's a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, for the last 40 plus years. Very big church in Philadelphia. And I heard him remark to his congregation once. And he said, you know, you guys may well, many of you here, may well be at the last place. This is the last stop for you in Christianity. Because we don't make you dress up. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't put a lot of stuff on you. We don't throw membership upon you. We just let God's move work among you. And so sometimes that's one of the things that maybe attracts you to like Calvary Chapel style of things. I don't know. James Boyce wrote this. He said, the remarkable thing about the persecution of Christians is that this will not always be by the world, but also, and indeed more often, by their half-brothers in unbelieving but religious people in a nominal church. Wow. Half-brother? I mean, that's scary. Nevertheless, he says in verse 30, what does Scripture say? You know, as I said earlier, always a wise choice. What does Scripture say? And he goes back to Genesis 21. And he says, Scripture says, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. This was true regarding God's decision that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes and the elders who chose to reject and murder their Messiah, Jesus, he let them reap their consequences. Seventy years after Jesus, A.D. 70, uh, Jesus, not 70 years, but in A.D. 70, the Romans would destroy Jerusalem. Utterly destroy it. So they reap their consequences. And they refuse to believe in the promised seed, the promise of Abraham, and they would not inherit the blessings of Abraham. Even though they called themselves children of Abraham, Jesus would have told them, he did tell them to their face, you're not, you're sons of the devil. So Paul here is calling for action. You know, he's saying to the Galatians that they need to separate from the false teachers. And that's what we're to do today as well. If, if, there's a fall, if you find yourself under uh, false teaching, if you find yourself, uh, you know, being courted by cultish behavior, you know, those people that come knock at your door, they want to give you something different, they want to give you their version of the Bible and maybe another book to go alongside it or certain tracts, you need to separate yourself from those folks. You say, no, thank you. Uh, I have a place where we study God's word. And if you're equipped to witness to them, you'll be able to do that as well. What he's saying, basically, is you can't sit on the fence about certain things. You cannot sit on the fence. Chuck Swindoll said this as we close. We can't fluctuate between rules and faith, mixing them with our approach to God. God won't allow that. Either we come to him his way, or we don't come at all. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis once wrote, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
The former are the family of faith and citizens of heaven, and the latter are the family of works and slaves of hell. Until we trust in Christ alone, we all belong to a second family, but after we're born again, we are members of the first. And so he closes, he says, so Paul says, so then brethren, back to speaking to his congregation that he planted up there in Galatia, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So the choice is ours. It's either Agar versus Sarah, the law versus grace, or flesh and our own efforts versus the Spirit of God and the promise of God. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you for our time in your word today, Lord. And we would ask that, Lord, it would be something that um, causes us to really examine where we're at. You know, if we, if we continue down this habit of saying, you know, I can do a certain amount of good in my life, you know, and God's going to judge me on a, on a bell-shaped curve so that if I do mostly good and maybe just uh, some bad, as long as the good outweighs the bad, then God, in the end, is going to, you know, uh, sort of uh, give me a break. We know that that's not true. We must trust in you as our Lord and Savior. We must surrender all that we have to become children of God. And Lord, we live under the promise that you've given. And those of us who have done that uh, have a testimony of your goodness. We have a testimony of the things that you've done in all of our lives and the things that you plan to do for us. So Lord, we thank you once again that we are able to gather under your name. We're able to gather together under your truth. And we ask that you would bless our day, bless the families represented here and the families that could not be here this week. Go before us all as we continue through our summer. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, let's, uh, let's stand, kind of shake it out a little bit here. Stretch out. <clears throat> let's, let's pray to one another. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.